0: There are so many approaches that are amazing for fat loss, Mm -hmm. maybe long-term because they're not sustainable, but you will lose weight. That doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna be metabolically healthier. Right. No, you can be destroying your LDL cholesterol and your insulin resistance, and yet still maybe less so insulin resistance, but losing weight. So if you're on a weight loss journey or fat loss journey, make sure you have your actual health in mind.
1: Welcome to Cut the Crap with Beth and Matt, the world's number one no-bullshit health and fitness podcast.
2: Are you ready to cut the crap with your diet and exercise, get strong as fuck, and build a healthy relationship with food? Then you've come to the right place.
1: Show your support for the podcast by joining our Patreon community, where you get exclusive content which consists of monthly workouts you can do at home or at the gym, monthly challenges that are either strength, habit, or mindset-based, and access to hundreds of lower calorie, higher protein, family-friendly recipes.
2: And now all Patreon members receive exclusive access to a private Facebook group. Now no, let's, let's cut the crap.
1: There she is. How
2: are you? Good. How are you doing? Hi. Hey.
1: <laughs>
2: Thanks for coming. We're glad yeah. to have you. Super Thank glad. You for inviting me. Really yeah. with you. We're excited to talk about something we actually haven't really discussed on this podcast yet.
1: Barbie, you are a cognitive registered dietitian. Is that kind of what you special in? Is that is that correct?
0: Well, I'm a registered dietitian who specializes in brain health. So okay. and metabolic health because it goes, they go hand in hand, right? Your brain cannot be healthy if we're if you're in poor metabolic health. So I really talk about it all. Amazing.
2: Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. So how did you get started in? working with people with metabolic health, um, cognitive brain function and things like that. How did you get interested in that?
0: Yeah. So I've been a dietitian for almost 25 years and I was always struck by when I was in school, the lack differentiation between men and women, you know, it was, I mean, with the exception of pregnancy, lactation, There were very few differences in terms of recommendations and I I just always felt like that was something that was lacking so I wanted to really specialize in women. So I have the whole time I also see men. I don't see teenagers anymore. So that just kind of evolved as I evolved, as my research evolved, as I got older, you know, as when I turned 40, I started to notice that there were differences Mm -hmm. (laughs) that, um, that I, you know, thought could be addressed through nutrition and lifestyle. And so I started to focus more on that with some success with my clients and myself. And then it just sort of evolved into perimenopause, menopause and I have to say, if I didn't do this for a living, I would have no idea that with perimenopause, we are at an increased risk of high blood pressure, elevated LDL cholesterol, insulin resistance, and intra-abdominal fat storage. I wouldn't know that because it's not, I mean, unless I was really following people on social media or whatever, I really wouldn't know that. And so when I realized that, I thought, "Oh wow, this is something that needs to be, addressed before it becomes super problematic in someone's later 50s, 60s, 70s, and then recognizing the connection between that and brain health, that's how it all kind of transpired because the brain has always really interested me. And of course, now with my mother's diagnosis of Alzheimer's, it's become much more personal.
2: Yeah, I bet. How old is your mom right now when she got diagnosed? She's 77 now.
0: She was diagnosed. Officially last summer, but I believe that if I could have gotten her properly evaluated in 2019, she would have been diagnosed then.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. My, both my father-in-law and my mother-in-law who actually my mother-in-law passed away had Alzheimer's and now my father-in-law has Alzheimer's, which is absolutely crazy. But crazier thing is that my husband's mother, that's her husband. And then his, his dad, it was his wife. So now the two that are divorced for a very long time, both have significant others that had Alzheimer's, which is really crazy. And with Gregory, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law kind of knew it was happening before anybody else. Mm -hmm. She's like, you know, he's just different. There's just, you know, there's just something I can't pinpoint, but, you know, you don't want to like put a label on it yet. And, you know, waited a little bit too long and then got him assessed and, you know, he was um, had Alzheimer's. So, yeah. It's it's an interesting thing.
0: It really is and you know my father died with dementia. It's not what killed him, but mm-hmm. he had definitely had dementia when he passed. And so like you're you've got it kind of all around you and I really do too, both of my parents. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's really a concern and it's something I really want to try to get women in particular but of course men too, thinking about in their 40s because this is when we're laying the groundwork. Usually, you know, especially early 40s we're still feeling pretty good mm-hmm. about things and so we're not really thinking about our later 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, but this is when we can be making such a difference. And so that's what I really hope to impart, yeah. you know, through my Instagram or whatever, or through my corporate work, you know, when I give big talks to lots of that's what I'm trying to convey. Let's do this. It's never too late right. to affect change and live better, but let's do what we can as early as we can because
1: it matters. Be kind more being... proactive. Yeah. I, than I, reactive. I just read your mind, Beth. <laughs> yes,
2: I was going to say proactive rather than reactive.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean,
2: that's, that's way when
0: we can, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure.
2: So with perimenopause and menopause, I know for me, because I'm 50, um, the brain doesn't work like it used to. So- mm-hmm. How do you tell the difference if, you know, if you feel like, I know sometimes I'm like, do I, am I getting Alzheimer's? Is this like early stages? I'll see somebody that I clearly know in the grocery store and I'm like, I can't remember their name. Right? I can't remember their name. I'm like, oh my gosh, is this, does this mean something? So how do you go about, you know, I don't even know that how to ask that question, but.
0: I think I know what you mean. How do you know if it's something to be yeah versus just perimenopause or this stage of life? Right. Yeah, which is a question a lot of women have. First and foremost, it is rare for Alzheimer's to be diagnosed before the age of 65. Okay. It's more something that starts to really, it's hap- you know, the changes are occurring earlier, but for the, for the symptoms to really manifest, it's usually more, you know, early sixties, mid sixties. It's not that it can't happen earlier. It does. But when we are in You know, our 45 to 55, it would be highly unusual if it was truly, uh, you know, mild cognitive impairment even, let alone dementia or or Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's type. What is happening during perimenopause is, you know, there are tons of estrogen receptors all throughout the body, does a lot of things, but in the brain in particular. And so it's going to affect basically every region of the brain, this erraticism that we experience in perimenopause, and then ultimately the leveling off and decline with menopause. So we can feel all kinds of cognitive weird changes. You know, I have, I have a habit of leaving the kitchen sink on and walking away for an hour, you know, those kinds of things, leaving our keys, weird places, Mm -hmm. definitely forgetting names that we really should know. As long as it's coming back to you at some point, even later in the day, do you know what I mean? Like, you don't remember it in the store, but a few hours later, you're like, oh yeah. You know, that is probably just these changes that happen in perimenopause. What I would say also make sure your sleep is good quality because that really starts to affect us. It always affects us, but even more now, Mm -hmm. and it can be very poor quality because of these weird hormonal changes. Make sure you're exercising, stimulating, you know, that blood flow nutrient and oxygen delivery, make sure you're, you're engaging in cognitive activities that you actually enjoy, not just work, you know? So you're constantly stimulating your brain. I would say if Particularly if other people are noticing
2: mm-hmm. there's
0: a difference for you yeah. or with you, that is when I think you do want to take more seriously just hopping into your doctor's office. There's a quick cognitive five minute test that they can do just to see. It's by no means thorough, but it can be kind of a starting point mm-hmm. to see if, okay, maybe we need further evaluation. And if you feel like you weren't heard in your doctor's office, And I know this can be complicated with insurance and so on, but self-advocate and say, no, really, I want you to take this seriously. Please don't just say it's because I'm in, you know, perimenopause or I'm in my forties or fifties. I want this to be evaluated. Yeah. So you're sure you're taken seriously, but usually it's if somebody else is noticing or you're forgetting how to do things that you know how to do like a recipe you've been doing for 20 years, all of a sudden you really cannot remember what you're doing. You know, those kinds of things, not just walking into a room and forgetting why you're there. That happens to all of us. Yeah. You know, really kind of constant and and it's interfering with your ability to function. Mm. That's when you should go get an evaluation. And it's probably nothing. You know, if you've had any medication changes, you know, that can definitely be an issue and have your thyroid evaluated
2: because Mm. that
0: and B12. Have your check full thyroid panel, not just TSH. So these would be things that you'd want to self-advocate for in the doctor's office if you're concerned.
1: Okay, okay. Now, you said that it was also rare to be diag- diagnosed before the age of 65 or so. Now, if I'm not mistaken, there's also a gene that, that you have that, when present, I guess, can increase the risk of, like, Alzheimer's. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, there are three genes that are what are called deterministic, meaning you are almost guaranteed to develop Alzheimer's if you have one of these three genes. Okay. That represents about 1% to 2%, I believe, of all Alzheimer's cases. That is rare. And you would probably know it because you would see it in other family members well before the age of 65. Okay, so this is like family members are getting diagnosed in their 40s and 50s.
1: Okay,
0: That is rare. Then there's the APOE4 gene. Which we all carry ApoE. And then there are three alleles two, three, and four. So there are six potential combinations of these ApoE genes that relate to Alzheimer's. If you have one copy of ApoE4, that confers a two to three times increased risk. So not deterministic at all. It does not mean that you will end up with Alzheimer's, it just bumps up your risk a bit. Uh, If you have two copies, so you inherited one from each parent, that is an eight to 12 times increased risk. So again, not guaranteed, but this would be someone who would want to pay extra special attention to their metabolic health, particularly their blood sugar and their cholesterol.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I didn't know that. that yeah. It's obviously highly, highly complex.
0: Yeah. And, but, you know, even if you, if you get tested and you have two copies of APOE4, do not take it as a sentence. Take it Mm. as, okay. So I have this, listen, we all have something. There is Mm. a list of about 50 things that can contribute to dementia risk. Mm. And some people have two copies of APOE4. They're at more risk than a lot of us, but there's still things you can do. You just want to be somebody who's paying extra special attention. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, It it does.
2: Now you mentioned dementia. So what are the differences between actually dementia and Alzheimer's?
0: So Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. There are oh, other okay. types dementia, vascular dementia, Lewy body dementia, you know, another neurodegenerative disease, Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. They all sort of overlap a bit in terms of the beta amyloid plaques, the tau tangles. These are present in most forms of dementia. But, and the thing is really For most people, a diagnosis of Alzheimer's is sort of looked at MRI, neuropsychological testing, maybe blood work, maybe a PET scan, if you want to spend the money and you really want to go down that route. But like my mother, for example, she had an MRI, Mm -hmm. which definitely showed, you know, a, a brain that looked, can't see the tau tangles or the beta amyloid plaques. You can see shrinkage, you can see much smaller hippocampus, you can see atrophy, and then she had neuropsychological testing, which is like a three hour long test where they evaluate your cognition in various mm-hmm. domains that, you know, absolutely showed there were deficiencies. So these two things together, her neurologist looked at and said, okay, you absolutely have dementia. I am very reasonably sure it's Alzheimer's type. Okay. Cause there wasn't vascular dementia and it wasn't Lewy body dementia. So it's sort of, you don't know for with 100% certainty. Without much further extensive testing, that's more invasive, more expensive, and kind of unnecessary. And besides, probably treat it the same, you know?
1: Gotcha. Does
0: that make sense? Yeah, it does.
1: If there's one thing we can all agree on, it's that life is hard. And with that comes a level of stress that can often be debilitating. Balancing your mental and physical health often seems like you need a PhD to achieve. And so often, we are only able to focus on one or the other, which can lead to a less than enjoyable life. And that's why I loved Cure Nutrition Serenity Gummies. From coaching calls to leadership meetings with my team, to tapping into my creativity for new content, to closing business deals, and even interviewing guests for this podcast, the Serenity Gummies have proven to be a valuable part of my self-care routine. I take them daily to help manage my stress and anxiety, and doing this allows me to perform at my absolute best, which helps me serve others to my absolute best. Formulated with their trinity of ingredients, a blend of full-spectrum cannabinoids, functional mushrooms, and adaptogens, Serenity Gummies are your answer to finding calm in the chaos that we call life. Right now, Cured is extending an exclusive offer to you, our listeners. You can grab a bag of Serenity Gummies for 20% off by visiting www.curednutrition.com ctc and using coupon code CTC at checkout. That's C U R E D nutrition.com slash CTC and coupon code CTC at checkout to save 20%. So, what are you waiting for? Pop a gummy and protect your peace. And let's cut the crap together.
2: So, what would someone in their, let's say, early 40s do to can you actually prevent Alzheimer's?
0: Well, I hope so. Right, right. <laughs> we can't say with absolute certainty yeah. right? because we don't really know what causes it. So, you know, we know that the presence, we know what an Alzheimer's brain looks like at autopsy. Mm-hmm. There are common characteristics, but what actually causes that to develop in someone, we don't know, and it's probably multifactorial, and it's probably things that we haven't discovered yet. But there are certainly things you can do, anyone at any age can do to help decrease that risk. I would say top, top shelf, making sure your metabolic health is in good shape. And we are really not doing too well there. I mean, one in three people worldwide has metabolic syndrome. So one in three people worldwide has high blood pressure, dyslipidemia, so wonky cholesterol and triglycerides, excess intra-abdominal fat and insulin resistance, if not prediabetes or diabetes. Mm -hmm. Three out of those four, one in three people worldwide has. So, and
1: alarming.
0: It's very alarming. And the statistics right now are that 88% of U.S. adults have at least one.
1: 88%.
0: Yeah. So only that means that only 12% of U.S. adults who are, you know, walking around are genuinely in full, complete metabolic health. Wow. Okay. So that's where we start. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. What
1: what the fuck can we do then to promote (laughs) good metabolic health?
0: Yeah. So obviously first and foremost is being a good patient, seeing your doctor regularly and having these things evaluated because that's the other thing about metabolic illness. It's silent. You don't right. know you have blood pressure. You don't know you have dyslipidemia. You don't know you have insulin resistance until you know diabetes has really progressed.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So have these things evaluated at least annually. I personally think a woman over 50 should be having these things evaluated twice a year because things can change pretty quickly with perimenopause and menopause. I think every woman over 50 should have a home, a blood pressure cuff, you know, and take it under different conditions. You know, first thing in the morning, after exercise, when you're just chilling and relaxing, after you've had a stressful call or argument or meeting, after sex, know what your blood pressure is doing in all different conditions. Not once a year at the doctor's office is not nearly enough mm-hmm. to assess what your blood pressure.
1: It's one fraction uh, of time. What'd you say? No, sorry. That's just one little fraction of time.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a couple minutes in time and, you know, with all due respect to doctors and, and, you know, nurse practitioners and, and physician's assistants, blood pressure is not usually taken properly. and because blood pressure is very clearly linked with dementia risk, especially vascular dementia risk. So make sure your blood sh- pressure is in good shape. If you have high blood pressure, either do all the things you can, nutrition and lifestyle to lower it, or please take the medication that's prescribed to you. We're so afraid of medication. I'm using the like, you know kind of universally with statins and blood pressure medication. And if you need it, take it.
1: Yeah. yeah. You don't get an award for not taking medication. <laughs>
0: right. No, you don't. And of course people are afraid of the side effects, but you know, if you allow LDL cholesterol to go on for 20 years, when you could have got taken a stat and, and, you know, prevented its progression, the side effects of that are a heart attack or a stroke or death. So, you know, not pushing medication. I'm just saying, please, if your doctor, if your specialist, if your team believes that this is appropriate for you, please listen, because I know a lot of people don't. So blood pressure, LDL cholesterol, take it seriously. We know for sure that LDL cholesterol is causative. It's not just linked to associated with, it is causative in atherosclerotic heart disease. So again, I know a lot of people who, I've always had high LDL cholesterol. I don't want to take a medication for it, so I'm just going to kind of live with it. Okay, obviously it's up to you to do whatever you feel is right for you. I'm I certainly would never push anything on anyone, but L, the exposure time, you know, like we call it pack years with cigarettes, it's called LDL years with, with elevated LDL cholesterol. The longer you're exposed, the more damage is done. APOB is a better indicator than LDL. So also get your ApoB tested. So blood sugar, cholesterol, and of course, insulin resistance. We got to take care of our, manage our blood sugar. And that usually can can go a long way with that by reducing intra-abdominal fat. For sure. Get moving.
1: Okay. Yes, exactly. Lifestyle yeah. factors. Yeah. I actually want to touch on the LDL cholesterol aspect there. Now, I don't know the anything about this, but is there with key, the keto diet? I'm not saying this to take a shot at keto, but with keto we we often see people's LDL cholesterol sky, skyrocket. So, mm-hmm. do is there any I guess causation there or link correlation there between keto diet and increased risk of dementia or Alzheimer's
0: diet specifically? I don't know. What happens a lot, typical keto diet, and this is not true across the board, but the typical keto diet will contain a lot of saturated fat and saturated fat is linked to an increase in LDL cholesterol. Now that said, there is a very small percentage of people who can eat all the beef and all the cheese and all the butter and all the full fat dairy and their LDL cholesterol does not budge. That's genetic.
1: Um, Those are the ones yelling at us with a steak in their hand on social media and you've got it. Primals, let's go.
0: Probably, but that is really not most of us. And, you know, from a dietary perspective, our best guess is saturated fat having an influence. And that might be the reason, again, we can't say for certain, Speculation. the reason that a ketogenic diet that's high in saturated fat may be linked. Also, you're not getting a whole lot of fiber, which really helps with LDL cholesterol typically.
1: Mm-hmm. Right? So damn important. There are so
0: many, something I really want to make clear about diets, just in general, there are so many approaches that are amazing for fat loss, mm-hmm. maybe long-term because they're not sustainable, but you will lose weight. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be metabolically healthier, right? No, you can be destroying your LDL cholesterol and your insulin resistance, and yet still maybe less so insulin resistance, but using right. weight. So if you're on a weight loss journey or fat loss journey, Make sure you have your actual health in mind.
2: Thank right, you. which Thank a you. lot of people do not. Thank you for that, absolutely. A lot of people just do things in the name of weight loss, but they're not thinking of the long-term effects of what they're doing to get there. Right, exactly.
1: Yeah. Obviously, we can see a lot of health benefits from losing weight or losing fat more, more specifically, mm-hmm. but not all fat loss is healthy. Not all weight loss is healthy, especially when we talk about weight loss, because then you're looking at things other than just fat, right? We're looking Bus. at- Yeah.
0: yeah fluid yeah making sure ideally what we're doing if we need to if it's appropriate for us is losing fat and gaining muscle Mm -hmm. that being having a body composition it's less about what the scale says the net number and more about more muscle less fat and you know every doctor i talk to and i talk to a lot and i know a lot i'm always just saying to them please 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 stop telling people lose weight and please Mm -hmm. come away with the directive to gain muscle yes (laughs) a big difference. And I think psychologically, I just know from talking to my own clients, when that's the, the perspective, I'm going to go gain muscle instead of I have to lose fat. There's something about that. I think a lot of people will embrace a little bit more easily.
2: Yeah. I think so too. It's more positive. Yeah. And that's,
0: that's exactly. Right.
2: You know, it's like, why don't you, you need to just build some muscle. You're under muscled. hmm and, you know, let's set you up with a personal trainer, right. get you in the gym rather than here you go. You should do this 1200 calorie diet, which I've heard a lot of people tell their clients or from clients that their doctors have told them or go so, keto. And I'm like, where are they getting this information? I know. Um, And it just makes them feel really bad about themselves.
0: Yeah. And of course it's unsustainable.
2: Yeah.
1: For sure. Always. Yeah.
2: I feel like there's such a disconnect with the doctors and the nutrition aspect that there needs to be some kind of intervention there somehow.
0: Well, yeah. um, and believe me, I'm doing what I can on my end, but right, you know, the bottom line is again, with all due, I have nothing but the utmost respect for Western medicine. It's yeah. a, every single second of every single day. Mm-hmm. But doctors. By and large, are not trained in nutrition. That said, they are the front line for most people. Most people will never see a dietitian or a nutrition professional. Most people will only ever see their doctor, maybe even only their primary doctor for all of their health needs. So they sort of naturally assume: well, my doctor's gonna know about fat loss, you know, just keeping me healthy, but they don't. Mm-hmm. And this is why I really try to impart to providers. Make sure you've got a handful of really good dietitians in your pocket, you know, that specialize in diabetes, eating disorder, renal disease, cardio, cardiovascular disease, whatever, so that you can shoot your people out to them for the nutrition and possibly, probably the lifestyle aspect too.
2: Right. Rather than handing them a piece of paper, it's like, here, this is what you should do. <laughs> I've seen it before. I'm like, oh my gosh, that, that's your meal plan for- you know, what you were just diagnosed, especially like, you know, say diabetes, things like that. People will leave the office with a diagnosis of diabetes and not knowing how to
0: eat. I see it all the time. One other thing I want to say, and again, it sounds like I'm doctor bashing, but I'm not. This is for the people who are listening. Right. I see this literally every week. Labs, because I look at labs, LDL is high or triglycerides are very high or there are signs of insulin resistance. And the doctor says nothing because it's so close to borderline or so close to normal. Instead of saying, Hey, I'm sort of seeing this start to go in the wrong direction. You don't necessarily need medication yet. If you get, you know, get with the program with nutrition and lifestyle, managing stress, sleeping better, et cetera. And if they can't handle, you know, guiding on that, you know, give them off to somebody else, but then people, I want people to know their numbers. That's my point. I want people to understand what does LDL, high LDL look like? Because right now, our guideline is 100 milligrams per deciliter. Most preventive cardiologists in particular, but even cardiology in general is starting to say we should be more around 70 because atherosclerotic heart disease is seen at 100 milligrams per deciliter. So that probably in the next 10 years is going to get lowered again. So no what high blood pressure looks like, know what elevated LDL looks like, know what high triglycerides look like and know what the beginnings of insulin resistance look like because all of it matters to your brain. Right.
2: So how does someone figure out what are those normal numbers?
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, there isn't like one specific, you know, what I thought, yeah. Not that easy. <laughs> oh, it can't be that easy. <laughs> Right. Um, But that I'm aware of. Right. I mean, certainly you can. Yeah, I think I think Harvard Health is a great website or resource for people who are not in the medical or nutrition field for giving quality information. If you just go to Harvard Health and type in LDL cholesterol profile and it'll show you what it's supposed to look like. Blood pressure it will show you what it's supposed to look like pre-diabetes, you can read a little bit about it. These are quick, easy to digest little articles that I think can be really helpful to people. I would recommend Harvard Health for that. There are lots of others, but that's what I would say.
2: And then you could probably look at your medical records and look at your trends over time, which oh. are all about the data. Right. That Absolutely. would be another.
0: But yeah. a lot of people will walk out of the doctor's office because they don't know what the numbers mean and why shouldn't yeah. That's not right. their job. And it hasn't been pointed out to them. I had a client last week who's had LDL of 170 for three years, Mm -hmm. LDL, not total cholesterol. And it was never pointed out.
1: That's Um, alarming.
0: Yeah. Um, So, and, and same thing with like a 5.7 HbA1c, you know, we're right there on the cusp of prediabetes. I like to actually see like 5.3, but Mm -hmm. not, not said anything. You know, we need to know what these numbers mean, so we can self advocate.
2: Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. I talk with people routinely, at, you know, coaching consultations, where they're like their wake up calls that they are now formally pre diabetic. Those their their glucose numbers are that high, you know, and that's when they start making the the, the changes. Which not faulting them, you know, we don't know what we don't know. But yeah. I think the message definitely needs to be spread more widely and from a top of the fucking roof that, or sooner the better, and take this more proactive approach. Um but also, we're talking about labs and numbers and things like that. In terms of insulin resistance, are there some symptoms that you could start displaying rather than you know looking at the lab work?
0: Not really. Okay. Uh, I mean, because by the time you're super thirsty, peeing all the time, fatigued, maybe even vomiting, that's you're usually far more advanced. What I recommend really is people tack on fasting insulin, not just fasting glucose and HbA1c, because fasting insulin will be elevated. before oftentimes before glucose is elevated or HbA1c is elevated because your pancreas is pumping out insulin working overtime to cover that glucose. So it might be doing a really good job. So if you're only looking at glucose or HbA1c, you don't know anything, but if you back it up and look at what your pancreas is doing with the insulin and that's high, that's your first indicator. So that's what I recommend that people ask to have that tacked
1: on. Okay, great.
2: Um, You talk about something about the MIND diet. Can you explain a little bit what that is? Yeah,
0: so there are lots of different approaches that one can take to benefit their brain in terms of nutrition, but the MIND diet Mediterranean-Intervention for Neurodegenerative Delay is what MIND stands for. And it was a research study at Rush University, Chicago in 2015 that was published that outlined foods that, and with a frequency of these foods that is particularly beneficial for brain health, specifically prevention of Alzheimer's. If you followed this diet, these foods with the frequency that they outline for four plus years, you had a 53% decreased risk of Alzheimer's disease. Now, it's never just about nutrition alone, but this study was looking at these foods specifically. So it included olive oil, berries, leafy berries, and leafy greens in particular, nuts,
1: good stuff, fatty,
0: fatty fish, you know, all the th- whole grains, all the things that we hear about over and over again that everybody just wants to think I've heard that before.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, you know, it's funny. It reminds me, I do a lot of corporate work. So I speak to a lot of employees across the country, around the world, actually. And I was, you know, kind of uh, getting hired by a company in California and something that they asked me in the meeting was, are you going to tell us anything that we don't know? And I thought, are all of your people metabolically healthy? (laughs) They're not, they need to hear what they've already heard. The basics.
1: We need repetition for sure.
0: Exactly. Of course we want to listen to the sexy because it lights up our dopamine and it's so exciting to hear like how many of us are actually doing those things. We need to back and move our bodies get some veggies and some protein, hydrate really well, go to bed for God's sake, Mm -hmm. and manage our stress. Be really proactive about managing our stress. So, I mean, sleep is right up there with exercise in terms of important your brain. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So you mentioned some of those foods there, Barbie. And it's, it's funny because some of those foods you mentioned, there's a lot of people on the internet telling you to avoid those foods specifically right I don't think any I don't think anybody's telling you to avoid olive oil I don't know I have never heard that one which is good that's very very right. good food but then berries and leafy greens and oats at one point or another some jackass has told us that those foods are <laughs> bullshit like right vegetables don't want
0: to be eaten right
1: yeah yeah, yeah vegetables don't want oxalates be eaten. No. <laughs> I'm like cows don't want to be eaten either <laughs>
0: what The fuck. that's an excellent point so you know i just don't even know what to say to that. It's absurd. Mm -hmm. We have so much research that indicates you don't have to be a vegan or even a vegetarian, but to just put more plants on your plate is absolutely associated with increased longevity reduction of all of our metabolic disease and and including cancer. Mm -hmm. So I just, I don't even what to say. I mean, obviously, you know, they're talking about anti-nutrients and so on, but my goodness, please stop it. We need more plants on our plate.
1: Right?
2: <laughs> yes. My goodness is right.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, most Americans right now, a lot of those foods we just mentioned, they have great source of fiber. And most Americans, and probably worldwide, we're not eating enough fiber as adults.
0: Fiber is so important. I mean, to just probably about every system in the body, indirectly or di- obviously directly to our you know gastrointestinal health, but indirectly in other ways. So, yeah getting the fruits, the vegetables, the nuts, the seeds, the beans, the legumes, the whole grains, good stuff. All good stuff. Yeah.
1: Okay. So let's talk about brain, brain health a little bit more here. Mm. So we're talking about improving brain health or promoting good brain health. Does that just kind of fall in line with trying to work towards good metabolic health then as well?
0: Yeah. Well, what I always say is if you figure out what is good for your brain and i we're talking about it you know take care of your metabolic health get good sleep manage your stress move your body if you're focused on your brain let's say instead of your ass or your abs mm-hmm. you are going to be taking care of everything that's my personal belief
1: i love that yes brain not the ass i, I can get <laughs> <consider> that
0: <laughs> however you want to say we should make it right true.
1: i don't know yeah for sure <laughs> <laughs>
0: But right, like, that's what I always try to impart to my clients in particular, like, let's focus on the health of your brain. Because when we're doing that, we're taking care of everything. It is very likely that 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 belly fat you don't like, you know, whatever is happening, we're gonna largely start to manage that if Mm -hmm. what we're doing is taking care of this.
2: Yes, absolutely. I wish people listen. (laughs) Listen.
1: (laughs) Brain's not ass guys. You know,
2: seriously, like, focus on your health and everything else kind of will follow when you do that. Like getting your fiber, getting your movement, getting those veggies, getting those whole grains, those fatty fish, you will see body recomposition changes once you start to focus on your health.
0: Absolutely. And you know what I love so much about the Mediterranean approach, the mind diet, it really is not about you need to get rid of. Of course, it mentions things that, you know, like alcohol, like a lot of saturated fat, like trying to keep ultra processed foods to roughly less than 20% of your diet. Some people can, you know, handle a little more, some people a little less, but it's so much less about exclusion and so much more about inclusion of these Mm -hmm. that we know to be particularly beneficial to our brain and our metabolic health.
1: I love so, that,
0: you know, and maybe hopefully if you try to include all these foods and you certainly don't have to do them all every day, but right. over the course of a week, if you try to nail all these foods, it might start to satisfy and crowd out some of the other stuff that may not
2: be as good for mm-hmm. your brain.
1: Yeah. yeah. We haven't really talked about the Mediterranean diet too much on this podcast. And that's obviously it's what you know, there's so much evidence and data to support, you know, yeah. how healthy it is. So Mediterranean diet isn't necessarily. It got its name right from the Mediterranean region, if I'm not mistaken. It's not they didn't just invent this way of eating; they just found that the people in in this region were eating this type of way, and they had, for the most part, better health than the rest of the world. Is that right?
0: Yeah, essentially. In a nutshell, certain aspects of it certainly have been criticized. I mean, for its time, it was a really good study. There are okay. other, but since we've kind of looked more closely at different aspects of it, and yes, repeatedly demonstrates itself to be better for longevity, for optimal health than anything else that we're aware of. There will be people who will argue that vegan, you know, being, you know, strictly plant-based is more beneficial. I think we can go back and forth on that all day long, Mm. but you know, I don't have any interest in that. I think if you're a vegan and you're doing it well, do you, but certainly fatty fish is, is a great way to go. And then other sources of lean protein are as well, but yeah, it is, you can certainly, I mean, we can still overdo <laughs>
1: with Absolutely.
0: Mediterranean, you know, anything
1: um, in excess. can pressure,
0: Right. Mm-hmm. But yes, in general, it is regarded as a really great place to start and then okay. fine tune it to you.
1: Perfect. Now, so that accounts for the way that they're eating and things like that. What about movement and things like that? Is there a specific, like, have they studied the movement of the people in that region as well and noticed any connection there?
0: Well, one thing that I think is so interesting that we definitely get wrong or miss or ignore in this country about the Mediterranean philosophy, and I don't love using the word diet, you know, approach yeah. philosophy because mm-hmm. it's a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to say approach or philosophy is that they are active people. You know, they walk to the market and back. They walk to work. They also chill out a lot more than Right. People. So there's there's a difference in stress management and activity not necessarily working out which is great but and there are lots of benefits to zone 2 and hit and and strength training obviously but in general just being a more active person that's something we don't do as much here
1: like they that, just walk more yeah.
0: exactly exactly absolutely
1: public transport. Like, I mean, there is, but, you know, tra- trains and things like that. But, you know, for the most part, those cities are very walkable. They're very old. Oh, they've got the infrastructure.
0: Very walkable. And it's not uncommon to, for businessmen to ride their bikes to work, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to, uh, we, we just tend to be much more sedentary here. And I always say there's a reason that being sedentary, you know, we usually only see it, maybe secondary to smoking in terms of disease risk, because the human body is not just designed to enjoy exercise or benefit from it. We're designed to require it. We must move our bodies. It doesn't mean that we need to be crushing it at CrossFit, you know, three times a week It means we need to just be moving, you know, taking walking up and down the stairs in our house, gardening, cleaning our own home, whatever, washing our own car, just being a person who moves. Yeah.
1: We've definitely lost that in the last few decades. I I always blame technology like the washing machine and computers and everything's automated now.
0: Remote controls. I mean, literally you could sit on your ass all day if you want and you could work, you could communicate, you could get food. You might have to move within a five foot radius like all day long if, if that's what you chose. And I think it is how a lot of people live their lives. Just like, why not? You know, but if we were just moving more, Huge benefit.
1: Mm-hmm. Totally. totally. Now this might be a loaded question, Barbie, but which in your opinion, then with those two things, nutrition and lifestyle in terms of movement, is there one that's more important than the other? Or are they really just that important to be together? Like if you can focus on one or the other starting out.
0: I always talk about what I call the four pillars of wellness okay. when I talk or with a client and it's nutrition, sleep, exercise, and managing your stress. And there are a lot of things underneath each of those, but the umbrella is the you know four pillars of optimal wellness. And then each of these four things, to be honest, even as a dietitian, I have to say if everything's a hot mess and you've got to start somewhere, sleep is number one, because if you're not sleeping, you don't have the energy for the rest of it. Right. Okay. Exercise is number two, move your body. Because the truth is, nutrition is nuanced, it's complex, and it's highly, what is really going to be right for you long-term is going to be so specific and unique to you. Mm -hmm. I would say start with sleep and then move on to really nailing being a more active person and hopefully actually intentionally exercising several times a week, then move on to nutrition. And in their mix there, You got to be working on your stress because if you are stressed out, it is going to get in the way of everything. Mm -hmm. So, actually, everything comes before the
2: nutrition piece, in my opinion.
1: Okay. I mean, I'm definitely not as much of an expert as you, but I would agree with that. You know, just if we can get people, just generally speaking, you know, like with our clients, we just get them moving more and not even purposeful exercise, right? Just increasing our knee, huge benefit of doing that. And almost instantly, they start feeling better.
0: I absolutely can also, I mean, you know, it can go either way because exercise can also help you sleep better. So in general, if sleep is a real mess, like it is for a lot of perimenopausal and menopausal women, I would say, do what you can to tweak that first so that you've actually got the brain power, the energy, and the, just the mojo to handle the
2: rest of it. Okay. I would like to talk about alcohol and brain health. Now, how (laughs) does alcohol affect brain health as well? And in general,
0: right. So I mean, alcohol is a neurotoxin. It's a hepatotoxin. We can't get around it. We now know, despite bunches of studies in the '90s about you know a drink a day or something having you know beneficial effect, particularly on heart health. We now know that that's incorrect. That there is no amount of alcohol that's beneficial for us at all. And certainly, as I said, it's a neurotoxin. So over time, now can most healthy people Who don't have any tweaky genes in this area get away with a drink a day. Probably, you know, Canada's recommendation is more, is two a week max. Mm -hmm. The American Cancer Society says no amount of alcohol, just in terms of cancer risk. I honestly believe it's one of the things, it's not necessarily easy, but it is one of the simplest, meaning uncomplicated things you can do Mm -hmm. to benefit both your metabolic health and your brain health, both directly in terms of decreasing toxicity in your body and indirectly in terms of improving your sleep quality, having more energy, being in a better mood. Maybe your relationships will improve. I have lots of women who are interested in eliminating it for a period of time. And this is obviously anecdotal, but they feel so much better. Most of them just never even go back to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I mean it. It is. It's definitely. Again, some people can get away with a little bit. Yeah, it's fine. Do you? But really, if you really want to take the health of your brain really seriously, it's not the. It's you know, it's not yes. the best.
1: <laughs> there we go.
0: And I know I'm a little biased,
2: you know, as a sober person. But it's
1: just. Oh, I didn't know that about you. But that that's awesome. Yeah,
2: I didn't either. I'm almost eight years sober, so I can. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. So I can relate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's why. I talk about alcohol a lot and it's something that it triggers a lot of people. I hate that word. It really does. They they will fight to the death about different foods that they won't eat because it may cause cancer, but they will never talk about the fact that they love to have their two, three glasses of wine a day and knowing that that actually causes cancer, but they they don't want to look at that.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, don't take away my, you know, my joy, my relaxation time, Sometimes. you know and it is so ingrained in the lives of some people in terms of how they celebrate how they socialize yeah. how they unwind in the evening i mean it impacts a lot of different areas that are really important in someone's life but like food does for a lot of people some people play with food the same way they play with alcohol you know i think we would really be doing ourselves a giant favor if we figured out and takes time especially if that's mm-hmm. your habit but Figuring out a way to do all of these things without substance, whether it's food or alcohol or weed or whatever you're doing, really just benefits you in terms of your physical. And I think I would dare to say
1: emotional well-being as well. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally.
2: I quit drinking in my early 40s and it was like pouring gasoline on my perimenopause symptoms. Oh, for I sure. just noticed that everything was just getting a million times worse. Mm-hmm. And women come to me struggling with menopause and they're drinking. I'm like, if you maybe just let go of that a little bit, you might notice some of your symptoms get a lot better. Right. Maybe even go away.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you know, when someone, when I'm working with someone who uh, isn't sleeping well and mm-hmm. is really, Struggling or upset about you know increased belly fat, but they're having two drinks a night. That is one of the. It's not maybe not going to take care of all of it, but it's contributing. You know, Mm -hmm. so can maybe figure out a way to tweak that. We would be making some progress in these other areas. Yeah,
1: that's the first thing I say when like when we do a Q and A or get messages on Instagram or something. People are like, "What can I do about my belly fat?" It's like, well, first the first question I always ask, "What's your alcohol intake like?" Because Mm -hmm. we know that that promotes storing belly fat. And a lot of
0: people miss that, yeah. you know, and I know that, you know, someone would say, well, you're sober, obviously you're biased. Anything I hate that. I, yeah. well, I know if anything, it makes me more clear about it.
2: Do you right. know that,
0: yes. I mean, it just does. And I, I, you know, I'm very evidence-based in what I do because I think I have a responsibility to mm-hmm. be, and this is what the evidence shows.
2: Yeah. So. Especially with sleep, which you're saying is is pretty number one. Um, The alcohol affects your sleep. And that is a trickle effect to everything else.
0: Right. I mean, you know, all these people are getting like ashwagandha and theanine and stuff. And it's like, just
2: don't have the alcohol. Right. (laughs) They're like, well, alcohol helps me sleep. I'm like, you're passed out.
1: You're not sleeping. That's not quality sleep. You're not sleeping. Being passed out is not (laughs) recovering. Totally. (laughs) too. That's one thing, too, we hear a lot about with alcohol is that helps them unwind and it helps them relax. And maybe so in that moment, feel like it's helping, but we have to think about the next day, right?
0: Oh. And that was when I really, you know, made a commitment. I ha- you know, I was somebody for whom it was a problem and so I needed to take steps. But when I start because I started drinking heavily be- because I have panic disorder and I you know I have an anxiety issue. Mm-hmm. When I finally started to make the connection that it was making my anxiety worse. <laughs> and so it was this giant cycle. I was like, okay. This is like my first step. And so, yeah. you know, that was really I think that if more women in particular, women in perimenopause in particular, because anxiety can come out of nowhere for a lot of, even if it's never been an issue, just because of all these brain, you know, chemical changes in the brain. Alcohol is like you said, that's throwing gasoline on fire.
2: It really is. Yeah. Our stories are pretty similar because I used alcohol to Cover my anxiety and panic disorder Mm -hmm. and thinking it would help, but it actually would make it completely worse. And the next day I'm like, oh, I'm anxious again, not even correlating the alcohol with it. And I'm like, I'm going to drink again. Then, you know, you're calm for a little bit. Then you have the anxiety back and it's just a cycle that just needed needed to stop.
0: It is. Well, good for you, by the way, that is not a decision to make. You know, I think hopefully the conversations are starting to happen more. They are. You know, it's I think it's I think maybe 10 years from now, the landscape will be very different mm-hmm. and we'll be we'll be seeing alcohol more as something that, you know, we're not using on a daily basis to calm ourselves down or whoever, however we're using it. I think we're going to make a lot of progress in that area over the next decade.
1: I think we're I think already you're seeing right. it. We, yeah. we get messages all the time and comments and like, mm-hmm. you no, know, I didn't, I didn't think I had a problem before and I still don't think I had a problem, but you definitely made me look at my alcohol consumption. That's really all we're asking people to do is let's be yeah. honest about our alcohol consumption here. Me personally, I can kind of relate to what the two of you said, you know, my wake up moment for me and I'm not sober, you know, I'm sober curious, I guess I would call it, mm-hmm. but you know, Last August, I went to Nashville. When I come and when I got home after partying all weekend, I had the worst anxiety and depression for like a week straight. And I'm not—you're normally an anxious or depressed person—and I was like, "What the fuck?" And so, I challenged myself thirty days without. And I ended up going like three months without a drink. And you know, like my life has gotten dramatically better since I really, really examined my alcohol—you know—relationship. And now it's mm-hmm. more so like I'm—you know—once every couple of months I'll have a drink or two, or unless I'm going out or something for a special mm-hmm. occasion, you know.
0: Right. You are very likely not increasing your risk of anything with that consumption. You know, I listen to, I love Denzel Washington. He's my favorite actor. And he said something, I'm probably going to butcher it. He said, if you don't think you have a problem, or if you're curious, if you have a problem, try putting it down for a month.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Just put it down. Yeah. How do you struggle at all? Do you struggle socializing? Do you struggle going to bed? Do you struggle unwinding? if there's any struggle, it's something to, con- it's something to look at, you know, don't label yourself necessarily. And I'm certainly not labeling you, but it's a conversation to have with yourself.
2: Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. That's what we usually do with clients too. If they're, you know, seems to be affecting their fat loss or they're, you know, asking, you know, what am I, you know, should I quit? What should I do? Is this affecting everything? It's like, okay, well give yourself like a 30 day challenge, even start with 14 days. If, if 30 days seems really overwhelming and usually they're, they'll start to feel better. They'll start to notice some changes.
1: That's how so many people get sober, right? Yeah. Like dry Mm -hmm. January.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just, and that's the thing. Constantly making choices. We make like 80,000 choices a day. And so it is entirely up to you. No one should ever make you feel ashamed for whatever your choices are, even if it's not the best thing for your health. You, but take ownership of it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, don't just let it be, oh, this is habit or compulsion or something that I'm, you know, doing and I don't want to be doing it and it's ruining my life, but I don't know how to stop it. Take full ownership of everything you're doing. And if you choose to do anything that may not be in complete alignment with better health, that's okay. Do you, it's your life, you know, but just take ownership of it. That's
1: all. Ownership. Yes. Absolutely. Own it. <laughs> own it. Yeah, own you it. here. <laughs>
2: right, exactly. Don't tell me not to drink my diet coke. No, if you're still drinking it. your, <laughs> if you're still drinking your wine, that's Wait, that's what, what drives me nuts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but, bath aspartame's a poison. <laughs> okay.
0: Right, or the organic wine, or like
1: you know, organic wine. Yeah. Yes, yes. Healthy wine. Okay, whatever.
2: <laughs> or gluten-free vodka. <laughs> Gluten free vodka.
1: majoring in the Did minors.
2: Oh my goodness. I heard it all. Yeah. I know.
1: <laughs> all in the name of health. That's what we go out of our way going back to alcohol. We go out of our way to figure out, find ways to still include alcohol into our life. Like, and if you're if you're one of those people, like that's a there's a good opportunity for you to kind of question that and and examine that. Like why is your healthy lifestyle? Why is it so important for you to figure out how to include alcohol in your quote-unquote healthy lifestyle? Well, I get that question all the time. How can I include it? And it's like, well, include it by or you start by just being honest with yourself about your relationship with it. Right.
2: Yeah. How can I include this wine but I don't know how to get my fiber in?
1: Yeah. Right, exactly. We're <laughs> focusing on the wrong shit. All the choices. As long as you're aware and clear-headed. And
0: That's clear, it. Do you, absolutely.
2: You do you, exactly. I love that. Thank you so much for being here. It was such a pleasure having you. I've learned a lot today.
0: Thank you so much for having me. You got so I, many
1: notes. <laughs> yeah, I
2: know. I'm gonna have to listen to this again.
0: To be with you, it's so much fun. Sorry, I didn't drop an F-bomb, look at me.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, pl- I think I probably covered it. I, I don't things.
2: even know if I had any today, which is surprising. <laughs>
1: if you want to go ahead and give us a complimentary F uh, bomb, you can. <laughs>
2: That's okay. It feels inappropriate now. <laughs> <laughs> Barbie, if people wanted to reach out to you, where can they find you? Give us all the links. <laughs>
0: yeah. So I really only have two. I have, uh my Instagram, which is the cognition dietitian, mm-hmm. and my website is com. So awesome. you can reach out to me through there.
2: Amazing. Perfect. We'll have those in the show notes you yeah thanks so much for being here we appreciate you
0: yes and i appreciate you too i appreciate both of you what you do your work and this podcast and thank you just so
1: much for having me it's been amazing to connect with you truly like you were kind of like you know i think we we connected maybe what a couple months ago i think and And you you when i saw
0: you you, alan aragon and i
1: listened i was
2: you know listening to your podcast so yeah yeah Yeah, and the menopause dietitian ladies I believe we heard about you from them too.
1: That's that's true actually. Yeah. Yeah. We're all in good company here. Thank you so much for being here today, Barbie. It was amazing.
2: Thanks you guys. Bye. Hope you enjoyed this episode. So why not share with a friend who needs to hear it? Send us a DM on Instagram or email us at cutthecrappod at gmail.com and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash cutthecrappodcast. As
1: always, we appreciate you and thanks for being here.